This is Robin Dreek, author of Sizing People Up, a veteran FBI agent's user manual for behavior prediction. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine, Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Robin Dreek, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Excellent being back with you, Douglas. It's uh, It's been not too long, but uh, thanks for the invite. I'm happy to be here and happy to share. Well, I appreciate you coming back. You're one of the more recent authors. Uh, you were episode 274, which aired in April of 2020. And uh, where are you back at your home in Fredericksburg, Virginia? Yep, in Fredericksburg still since we last chatted. And uh, not a whole lot has changed except the length of my hair. And I'm actually one of the few people probably losing weight right now. I figured the uh, quarantine is a great opportunity to uh, make sure I'm eating healthy and exercising and all that. So... There you go. Oh, good for you. Yeah, well, my hair is getting longer, and about six weeks ago, I stopped shaving just to see what would happen. I've never gone this long without shaving. Perhaps it was all that military uh, <laughs> training I had. I'll tell you, it's a real challenge. So there's a couple years before I retired from the FBI that I was doing something that I needed to kind of shift my look up a little bit. So I actually let a beard go, and I had it going for about eight eight or nine months. And there's actually a few shots of uh, me doing a couple of other podcasts with it. And it's it's funny. It, it definitely changes your look. Um, mine is salt and pepper, but mostly gray. And what was really funny is at the same time, my son decided he wanted to get his motorcycle license. And the only way my wife would allow that to happen is if him and I took a motorcycle training class together for three days. And our instructor was an old-time biker, and he had a big Harley and all that. And we had, I had this half helmet on, so it, it was just literally covering my skull and I had the beard, I had the sunglasses and he, I, he gave me the best compliment I ever had in my life so far. Um, cause I, I'm a big fan of walking dead and the guy said, I look like Negan, uh, the bad guy in walking dead. So I was like, wow, that beard really changed my look up a lot. Oh, okay. So did you end up getting a license? I've had mine since 16. Um, so we just did it together. So yes, he got his license too. And you, do you all have motorcycles? Um, so, uh, yes, I have a, uh, I have a Honda, uh, uh, Nighthawk arrow, not a night, a Nighthawk, uh, uh, it's a Honda arrow. So it's an 80, uh, what is, what year is that? It was 2006. It's a used one. Uh, it's maroon and um, black. It's gorgeous. It's only a 750, but it's, it's a nice bike. I get to ride it. I got a size that he could actually ride, but since he's at the Naval Academy now, he's not allowed to ride till he graduates. So instead, he's got a a, a nice nineteen ninety two Camaro instead that we've uh, worked on. So it's he's having fun with that. That's right. And you mentioned that uh, 
Camaro, when you were on, uh, when we inter- I interviewed you about sizing people up, and you say he's a midshipman at the Naval Academy, but even he had to, they sent him home. Yeah, um, they've been in lockdown, well, lockout, I should say um since the first week of march is when they uh, left on spring break and he's been home studying the entire time they're relentless on them they're still doing uh number grades and he is a mechanical engineering major and he is in the middle of finals right now and their plant so all summer training for the navy uh naval academy has been canceled uh they're looking to put them through more summer school classes so they're gonna just rack their brains all summer long the incoming the incoming plebe class is still gonna be indoctrinated and they're slowly bringing the seniors that are graduating back in waves um, since they can't do a big graduation at the uh, stadium this year what they're doing is they're graduating them and uh in the main t court it's called right front of Bancroft Hall where they first took their oath of office when they came in in smaller groups uh, over a course of a couple of weeks so they at least get some of that so it's a uh, different times no doubt everyone's adjusted well did they also send your son home because you're an alumnus of the Naval Academy and they knew that you'd be able to supervise him and, and uh, supplement <laughs> the experience <laughs> no but I'll tell you living a little bit closer is definitely a little bit easier because uh, I feel we feel really bad he had one of his roommates that live in Albuquerque New Mexico and he had gone seen a friend on spring break and it took him forever to get permission because they they gave him an all shelter in place order and so everyone wherever they were at at the end of spring break had to stay there and so you had midshipmen all over the country that were just on vacation visiting people that had to get special permission from you know the superintendent the naval academy to actually move and go home so it was uh, (laughs) luckily kevin was here because we live pretty close oh wow that's really something well has your life changed by suddenly you you couldn't go back on the road and and uh, do training and keynotes yes this Yes, ish, kind of. Um, I, you know, I think what everyone's been doing, at least for the people that I've been talking to, my friends and people in a similar line of work, is the things that I had on the back burner, not because of they weren't as important, just because of time. Because when you travel and you're a keynote speaker and an author, um, you're on the road a lot, and so you don't have a whole lot of time to work on the other things you want to, which is actually what I've been doing. I, I've been able to really focus on my online training courses, um, and I'm really pleased with how they're coming out. A lot of in-depth knowledge, and I got two more I'm working on. So I've been doing that and working on you know, what you're really great at is you know marketing, You know, trying to figure out a, a whole new paradigm of how to do that. And I've done so, you know, so far, I've been busier now since this all happened, you know, just because, you know, people are getting really accustomed to doing zoom calls and doing uh different you know engagements you know from their homes it's i I have really and i actually just did a phone call with a group i'm giving a a speech to in a couple weeks you know doing a webinar form and you know she's talking to me it's first time i'm meeting her you know in person well in person you know virtually Mm -hmm. you know she's talking to me from her living room i'm at my home office which is basically my dining room you know and the the level of intimacy that people are actually having, even though we're separated by space, is actually a lot higher. Yeah. You know, there's one there's one of these relationship accelerators I talk about, which is intensity. And intensity is basically how personal things get, you know, in in dialogue and relationships rather than just, hey, let's talk about the weather over a beer at a bar. These are actually much more intimate because we're all in each other's homes and we yeah. never have been before. So I, I, it's it's a really different way of engaging. I think, you know, if you look at the positive out of anything, you can really take a lot from it, I think. That's true. So 
you uh, were a Naval Academy graduate, and then you were a Marine Corps officer for five years, and then you were with the FBI for 20 years, I believe. Is that right? 21, yes. 21. I changed myself that extra one. <laughs> okay. I, that all counts. It all counts. So for those that haven't listened to your interview, uh, remind us uh, what you did in the FBI and uh, then what your most recent book is about. Sure. Um, so after the Naval Academy Marine Corps, I came in the FBI in 1997, and I was immediately assigned to the New York field office. So I worked in Manhattan for the first nine years of my career. And my job inside the FBI the entire time, the all 21 years, was I was a counterintelligence agent. And so what that, you know, as a special agent with a specialty in counterintelligence, and what that meant was, especially in New York, my job was to recruit spies. And so I never really considered myself an investigator because investigators solve crimes. And my job was to recruit spies. So I considered myself an operator. So it was a sales job, basically. Yeah. And that's why I was related to it. You know, it's the toughest sales job in the world um, to me. (laughs) I'm selling a concept of helping America uh, or American patriotism to foreign spies that are actually diplomats for other countries. You know, so they generally don't want to buy my product. And it was actually by treaty illegal for me to approach them as an FBI agent to try to sell my product to them. So you have a lot of things going against you there. Mm. And I eventually took over, you know, I got on a behavioral analysis program, which is, yeah, layman's terms, it's profiling for counterintelligence, but it's really not profiling. It's actually your behaviorist. And so I was a counterintelligence behaviorist on my team, and I took over our counter our behavioral analysis program for counterintelligence in 2010-ish, ran it for a couple of years, um, went back to the field for four or five years and did cases again at the field level until I retired. So yeah, I've been I've been chatting with people and protecting national security for a very long time. Well, thanks for doing that. So you, while you were at the FBI, you then codified what's uh, outlined in Sizing People Up about the ability to determine if you could trust someone? Sure. Um, Yeah. So Sizing People Up, it's kind of, it's a progression from, because life is not a destination that you're trying to get to. It's a progression of, of constantly moving, constantly changing, learning and bettering yourself so you can be better for others. And so my first book was about building rapport. My second book, The Code of Trust, was about how your behaviors inspire trust in others. And when I started focusing on figuring out how I can inspire someone to trust me, again, anti-manipulation, anti-deception, I am 100% about honest, genuine, sincere, great relationships. I started realizing that you could actually predict what people are going to do. And some people like in trusting someone is based on whether you like them or not. And that's a really kind of messy, subjective thing. So I actually talk about trust in terms of predictability. Right. Okay. And so that's what this book's about. You know, six signs of really reasonably predicting what someone's going to do. And so for the whole purpose of, is this a good, healthy relationship for me? Is it a good, healthy relationship for them? Can we, you know, merge our priorities together and be resources for each other? And so that's what this one was all about. Yes, and uh, I hope another book that you write about is called Stempathy. I've already put that yeah. idea in your head. Explain what Stempathy yeah. is. I loved it. So, yeah, so Stempathy is uh, something I came up with um, right around the time I was writing this and, and contemplating, because I was contemplating the fact that th- there's a chapter in the book that I start out with, you know, how to think like an FBI agent, because it came out. Because the the guy I write with, uh, Cam, he he wrote. I remember, you know, he, you know, you interview, you you work on the content, you know, you edit back and forth, and he had come up with this line. And he said, "I was sweating bullets," 
And I, I just looked at him. Well, I looked at him virtually because, you know, we don't talk, do this in person. And I said, Cam, I said, that is like such an inaccurate phrase when referring to me. And what I do is I don't sweat bullets, I think. And he goes, what do you mean? I, he said, you know, this is a really stressful situation. And I said, yeah, but if you get stressed and emotionally hijacked, you can't think. And he said, so you think like an FBI agent? I said, well, I never really thought about that way, but yes. And so what it is, is stempathy is the combination of stoicism and empathy. And stoicism is what I was just talking about. So the Stoics, it's, and, you know, they say they're, you know, they're, they're pessimists or no, no, it's actually, it's cognitive thought, like just cause and effect of behavior. So if you understand that human beings were genetically and biologically coded to want to always act in our own best interest in terms of safety, security, and prosperity for ourselves and our loved ones, you now know what they're going to do. And that's a very cognitive thought process, as long as you understand what that means from their point of view. So that's the stoicism part, which is about understanding cause and effect of behaviors. But at the same time, though, in order to make that great human connection, to build trust, to build relationships, you need to have a massive amount of empathy. In other words, how they, how the other person sees the world from their particular optic, their context, their generation, their ethnicity, their, their gender, their age, all these things play into that. And to understand another human being is to make that connection, which is grand, grand empathy. So when you put the two together, so you have cognitive thought with empathy, I came up with sympathy. There you go. Well, it's, it's, uh, I was actually doing an episode of the B2B Growth Show that I do every month with another with an author named James Muir, and uh, he listens to every episode of the Marketing Book Podcast, and then he reads all the books. And so just today, we were recapping the last four, and uh, he uh, really enjoyed the book, as did I, and we were talking about uh, stempathy and emotional hijacking, and <laughs> what a useful book. So, uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. And, and I think it's too. really helpful for, I mean, lots of folks, but particularly, um, you know, uh, salespeople. And the one thing that uh, James was talking about, just to give you another impression, is he talked about how much empathy you show in the book, meaning just acceptance of people. And that, that certainly came through when I was reading it, because when you're dealing with these folks, I think a lot of people would think, oh, I want them to change or I want them to be this way or they're a bad person or whether it's like, no, that's, that's actually not helpful. You know, uh, that is, you know, Douglas, I've done so many of these things and, and every once in a blue moon, um, something someone says just strikes me at my core and you just did. I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you, you know, sharing what you took away and what he took away about you know, this feeling I have towards others. And I literally am misty in the eyes and I got goosebumps because you get it. You get what I was about when I wrote the book. It's about understanding others at a deep level and never trying to change anyone, just understanding. And it, it is such an effort for some people to do that. And most of all, it was an effort for me. I was born and hardwired as a hardcore, hard-charging type A from the Northeast as an extrovert. And I was one very, very hugely judgmental human being, and uh, and to and then you went in the Marine Corps. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, w w well, which made it even worse. Right. Um, you know, and so uh, don't get me wrong, I know, love my Marines. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. The, the Marine Corps was a, a fascinating and great, great life enhancing experience because it's about being a hard charging, take charge type A. But in order to do that, you have to understand your people. At a deep core level, matter of fact, uh, one one of the courses I have called the Code of Trust, 
the thing I have in there, the greatest tool that you'll walk away from it, and that I, I still use every day is what I call the leadership notebook. And that's what I did in the Marine Corps. And inside this leadership notebook, you start writing down and understand the priorities and goals of others. You start to understand their context so you can actually communicate effectively. And then you start thinking in terms of how can I be a resource for these people's success in terms of their priorities. That's what I had to do in the Marine Corps. My job was to make sure that my staff NCOs didn't do something stupid in their careers at the same time accomplish the mission. And so I can also be a resource where they can be successful in their careers and go home safe at the end of every day. Yeah. So basically, I was a morale officer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before a big weekend, you would probably have to do safety briefings. Did the subject of crayons ever come up? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Okay, we got to let people in on the joke. What, what, explain that. What's the, what's the deal with Marines and crayons that everyone's always talking about? Well, it's <laughs> there, there's lots of jokes that are circling around the Marine Corps. You know, crayons, or uh, we, ha- you know, you have to do a lot of you know professional military education, and so we called it math for Marines. You know, where you learn how to add one plus one, right, with crayons instead of you know, you know, it, usually you got to start out with a pencil, you know, because you have to be able to erase things. You move up to, from there to crayons, and then from there maybe a pen one day. Or I actually don't call them pens; they call them ink sticks. Marines are very literal; they're ink sticks instead of uh, tennis shoes or, or sneakers. They're called go fasters. Um, <laughs> and it's not a hat; it's a cover. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely not a hat. <laughs> no, there, there's uh, there's funny matter of fact. Uh, there's I'm on a Facebook page with all my classmates from the Naval Academy, and uh, we're we're well beyond our our graduation year we're a pretty tight group matter of fact one of our classmates is the commander uh, the captain of the teddy roosevelt you know if you've been following the news at all that was one oh, of my yeah. classmates okay um, now and they're all, now making noise about uh he should actually reinstate reinstate them, yeah. yeah yeah it's it's fascinating to see well, how close we should explain are. for folks that don't know that teddy roosevelt was deployed in the pacific uh some of the sailors were getting a coronavirus and he sent a message i guess to his chain of command and it got out uh, what the situation was? Yeah, um, they were his crew was getting sick, and they he sent a message up the chain of command to uh, he wanted to pull into Guam to offload the sick people and and quarantine so they could uh, and, and I mean that's I'm really simple simplifying it and uh, that letter got out um, to the press and so it caused a big hoopla and so he was relieved. But now uh, the acting secretary of the Navy, who was also a Naval Academy grad, uh, was fired for um, some of the actions he took. Oh, actually, not fired. He was uh, he's ser- turned in his resignation. So now the chain of command is looking at reinstating him. In other words, just a really big, challenging situation. Uh, but regardless, uh, the guy is my classmate, and it's it's just it's really heartening because you know when you spend a lot of suffering years together, how, how it really bonds people. And my class really rallied around him, um, regardless of, uh, of anything. And it was nice seeing him supported. Yeah. Well, and, and he also came down with coronavirus too. I don't know his current status, but he actually got infected as well. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. You know, um, on a normal time, that would be a, an enormous, uh, story, but, it's like the coronavirus news is sucking all the oxygen out of the news cycle. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 uh, you know I, I've been talking a lot about this too um, recently. You know because people ask you know how is it affecting you? What's you know what's going on? And you know I start out you know my opening story in sizing people up is my experiences during nine eleven in New York City. 
ends where I first, you know, where I really started having to put into some sort of effect of who can I trust and who can I inspire to rally behind me so I can move forward with things that were important for national security. And one thing, you know, that remind that this current pandemic reminds me about 9-11 is that anytime something so massively impacts the entire world, such as 9-11, the thing that causes it really happens twice, if ever, in history. In other words, you know, the things that happened during 9-11 with the hijacking of those planes and the floating into buildings, the things that we as a society put into place so that that would never happen again, really pretty much ensured it would never happen that way again. Because, you know, it was such a thing out of the blue, um, non-predictable, all, all these things. And so, you know, between air marshals and and reinforcing doors and screening people and what you bring on plane. I mean, so many things were put into place to make sure it never happens that way again. I, and I suspect, and I think we're starting to see the signs of that during coronavirus, is the same things happening. You know, between great inspirational people that are doing amazing research so fast, so furious, coming up with, you know, things that lessen the the impact on people if they do have it, coming up with vaccines, you know, people being so much more aware of social distancing, washing. I mean, all all these things that we as a society are doing very rapidly to counter this. I think what will happen is it will never in our lifetime, my prediction is nothing this severe in the way of a pandemic will happen again for quite some time just because we saw the the horror of it once. And once you see that kind of level of horror, um, society does amazing things to make sure it doesn't happen that same way again. That is really interesting. And it does remind me of after 9-11, I was at a party and I was talking to this uh, fellow who was a pilot for a big airline. And you know, we were talking about 9-11 and, you know, what the, how they're securing the cockpit door and some other things. And he just laughed and said, I'm not worried about it. It's never going to happen again like that. Yep. <laughs> so, well, think about this, too. I mean, so here we are. I mean, think about the change of how we all think today as compared to a month ago. So about a month ago, I was getting a haircut. I thought nothing of it. You know, I heard about, you know, this thing from Wuhan, you know, that may or may not come here. It wasn't a big deal. And all of a sudden, a month later, if another, you know, I live in an area in Virginia, you know, like you do, you're south of me, that, you know, we haven't been too impacted, but, you know, we're, we still haven't, you know, talked about maybe going to, you know, stage one of opening. But if all of a sudden I read in the paper or saw in the news tomorrow morning that we had an outbreak here. There's no more guessing what to do. I know exactly what to do. I'm going to make sure I have enough toilet paper. I'm going to make sure we have enough food. I'm going to make sure I'm wearing my mask. I know social distancing. You know, I got my sanitizer in the car. I got my wipes. I mean, there's no guessing anymore about what to do to make sure that we don't cause another bloom. We all know exactly what to do. There's, you know, no one has to tell us because we've been exposed to the, the stress of it. We've been exposed to the horror of it. We've all seen how horrendous it's been in the bigger cities, and we know exactly what to do as a society and individuals never to let that happen again the same way. So that's what I think has really changed. Interesting. Well, Robin, I got a message from a listener, Maureen Farmer in Nova Scotia, and she was so impressed with the interview uh, that you did uh, on uh, the show uh, in April. And she has uh, called in with this message, and I'd like to play the message now for the listeners to hear, and then ask you uh, to respond. And I would also like you to uh, include that 
what she's asking in this uh, message is um, wasn't exactly your area of expertise in the FBI. So you want to make that <laughs> real clear there. Absolutely, and I will. And I, I, I've, I've really focused on this hard since, uh, since you shared it with me too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to sharing. Okay, and so, and and also, anyone who uh, wants to send a message to the podcast, just record a voice memo and uh, email it to Douglas at salesartillery.com. Hello, Douglas. This is Maureen Farmer, and I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We interacted a couple of times on LinkedIn a while back, and I listened to your podcast, as I do every week, with Robin Dreek. And I have to tell you, I'm absolutely so fascinated by it that I'm going to get his book. And after COVID-19 is over, I'm going to go look for him and see where I can hear him speak in person. I also wanted to let you know that his book is particularly relevant for us right now in Nova Scotia. We just had a mass shooting of 22 people in three different communities in our province, and uh, 22 people died. It was horrific. It happened uh, last weekend, uh, April 18th, 19th, and uh, it would be fascinating to have someone like Robin profile this guy, although it's not going to bring those people back. But look, I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your program. I never miss it. Um, and I appreciate your um, your podcasts so much and, and just your commitment to uh, your listeners and to your profession. So that's it. This is, again, Maureen Farmer. I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, I hope that I get to, to maybe meet you someday. Anyway. Thank you. So, Robin, what are your thoughts? Well, as you said before, before we listened to it, yes, this is not my area of expertise in the sense that I am not a profiler and I did not work uh, criminal investigations, you know, which is generally dealing with abnormal psychology. But I am definitely a behaviorist, a human behaviorist, and when I when I listened to her uh, her great question, very very emotional about what uh, they went up through in Nova Scotia, I, li- I really went through basically all I could find because I, I'm not privy to any investigation or anything else. I, I went to all the news articles that actually came out right that day and after that day. And what really struck me, you know, was the same kind of stuff that all my friends, because I, I am, you know, I am friends with a lot of people on the on the behavioral analysis unit side, which are the criminal profilers, and we've actually had you know on my side as well. When you're dealing with espionage, you know that is generally dealing with abnormal psych as well. So we dabble in it. But the first thing that struck me was that one of the investigators up there said that this individual um, seized on trust, and that really struck me because you know he posed as a law enforcement officer and he and he rigged his car up to look like a law enforcement car so that people would trust him, which actually fit a profile of what these types of mass shootings generally do. And that is these people that have in the United States, at least that have, you know, where have you seen them shoot people up? Schools, theaters, um, places that have been designated no gun zones, churches, synagogues. It's all the places that are soft targets. And what this individual, again, I am not the professional in this, I don't have all the information, but what he attempted to do, and, looks, and he did very successfully, was he created soft targets by, by seizing on trust by his apparel and his, and, his, um, and his demeanor. And 
I remember when I when I was first reading the first reactions was that they, they said, you know, we don't know what the motives are. You know, it seems like he just had an argument with his girlfriend. And before that, the last uh, thing he'd been, you know, encountered with the police, I think, goes back to 2001 or something. And what struck me with that was, you know, as a behaviorist, is that people generally don't go from zero, zero to 100 on a scale in a snap of a finger. And if they do... It's generally an emotional hijacking moment where it's a, a and they call it it's a crime of passion, and crimes of passion don't last thirteen hours. So that's what also struck me with this was they said it was spurred, you know, potentially spurred by an argument he had with his girlfriend or his domestic partner. And I'm like, and the thing that struck me with that one is like that would be a crime of passion which doesn't last that long. And also, this is premeditated. The you know you don't have someone that's able to impersonate a law enforcement officer and have a car that looks like a law enforcement car as a moment of passion, passionate, you know, response, you know, over response. And so, and so that's what kind of struck me as a little incongruent at the beginning of that. And then as I, I looked, you know, a couple of weeks later at there, what they're saying was that this had been, he had actually had a, a number of disputes with people and, and they've been escalating over time and so that started making a little bit more sense to me as i was reading it again open source is all i saw and so i think one of the things that maureen was you know kind of searching for is you know how do you and like we all do you know, like how do you recognize this how do you prevent this from happening that's a tough question it always is tough because here's what's really tough what's really tough is Human beings in general that act and live within the normal parameters of human behavior, we're very forgiving and we're very trusting and we don't want to believe the worst in people. And we're also very, we're very leery of pointing fingers at people and accusing people of being a certain way because, again, that can back have a backlash on us and whether it's professionally or personally. And so, but in general, when people are escalating, in other words, what's happening is people like this, they're starting to show deviations in their normal behavior. And so as you start observing and people in his life are seeing deviations in normal behavior, you know, that's when you have to take notice and say, what's going on here? Is this, is this a threat? Do I tolerate it? Do I turn my head and look the other way or don't I, you know, I can, uh, in hindsight, it's always 2020 with these things. And it's the same thing, whether it's espionage and, and internal threats to places, hindsight in every single case is said, and you've always then been able to find people that said, ah, man, I, I did something was a little off. Something was a little different. This request they made for this was a little different. Why would he be asking that? You know, so when you piece all these things together, you know, hindsight gives us that 2020. Unfortunately, though, it's hard to put those pieces together because we are a very forgiving uh, society. His girlfriend was probably too close to the to the situation. It's very hard to see changes when you're that close because you're you're emotionally attached to the outcome, and so they have you know people that are that close definitely have a bias. They, in other words, they have the empathy part without the stoicism part of the cause and effect. Hmm. Any thoughts on you know, on uh, the the grief process that the people in Nova Scotia are going through? Because I mean, you know, when I I've I've heard people talk about how. Um, grief is actually something that a lot of people are going through right now, even not even the people that endured that in Nova Scotia, but the the grief of all this change and, and what's suddenly been thrust upon us. Yeah. 
I've, I have faced it as well. You know, the matter of fact, I've been putting together my, my online training and, and, and expanding my current, you know, presentation for sizing people up. And I, I really start out, I, I really do a deeper dive on nine 11 and nine 11 as, as the impact it had on me as an individual, which, and we should, massive. we should remind uh, listeners that you were there in lower Manhattan when it happened. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was about five blocks away when the North Tower got hit by the plane. I had counted about eight bodies jumping from the North Tower before the second tower, before the South Tower got hit. You know, I was in the middle of a lot of mayhem. And every day when you went home and when you came back down to the city, going through multiple checkpoints, and there's all these kids and mothers and fathers, you know, standing on street corners holding them up signs, please find my father, please find my son. I mean, it was the most heart wrenching thing in the entire world. And you felt the entire world was counting on you to try to save it. And it, it really puts you into a, a tailspin of thinking you're not doing enough. And then you have the grief of it. Then you have survivor's guilt, you know, if people go through that. And the thing that was the most effective thing for me by accident, not by design, because, you know, type A's are, are macho guys that, you know, don't accept help because especially when you're in a place where no one's really offering it anyway, <laughs> was. Well, and let's be honest, it is a sign of weakness, Robin. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, not anymore. Matter of fact, I get really angry at, at. I know a lot of you know. Matter of fact, I have a friend who's a law enforcement officer locally. That uh, I remember when they told me about you know only a couple of months ago. You know, they were actually were the first um, situation where someone lost a life, and the first thing I said to them was, "Who are you talking to?" You have to talk to someone now because this will, I mean, it can eat you up. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, and that luckily for me, that's what I had. You know, not only did I have a great supportive wife that, you know, that just listened or didn't listen, whatever I needed. But the really important thing was, you know, in my book, I have this mentor and guide called Jesse Thorne. Um, he's a real life guy. Matter of fact, uh, he emailed me yesterday. Um, he is, I chatted with him nonstop. In other words, I had a good, healthy relationship. And so, I'd recommend for everyone going through, you know, whether you're you're emotionally and spiritually stressed right now because of COVID nineteen, and the and everything's going on with that. Whether you're losing a job, lost a job, don't have enough money, um, you're socially isolated, all these things, and then for the people in Nova Go- Nova Scotia, same thing. You know, there's no magic bullet that can fix this. I don't understand the stages of recovery because they're. I mean, I know them, but. I really think that if nothing else, the first thing you need to do is share, talk, share to someone who's not judging you and not trying to fix you, just listening to you. Listening and validating are the such key important things. Matter of fact, those those four things I talk about all the time that human beings seek and crave, it is it is so much more important now to utilize these things with everyone you're talking to all the time because we need to feel connected. We need to feel understood. And this is it. You Mm. seek the thoughts and opinions of others, or you find someone that you can share yours with without being judged. Second, you talk in terms of your priorities if you need to share. And if you want to give it the gift to someone else, talk in terms of their priorities, their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations. In other words, things that make them feel safe and secure and and things that will make them feel prosperous. Finally, uh, the third thing is validate them. In other words, don't judge them. Don't seek to fix them. Validation means seek to understand them. Have a deep-seated curiosity about understanding 
what they're going through, understanding how they feel, understanding the challenges that they think they have, you know, and so validation goes a long way to healing. And then finally, if appropriate, empower people with choices. Because what happens is, is once you understand and listen to someone's goals and priorities, you know, the only way you can help people move forward is by asking them discovery questions, which are choices, you know, say, hey, you told me you're trying to get through this. Help me understand is is what you're doing here helping or hindering you moving forward. And maybe you don't feel like moving forward yet. That's fine too. So again, you're talking in terms of their priorities, you're seeking their thoughts and opinions, you just gave them choices. So I think the first step to help people move forward and heal is just to be able to do that to each other and for each other. Mm, yes. And I think you had mentioned you'd been doing some work with uh, American military veterans uh, dealing with PTSD. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh I've worked with a lot of different groups from time to time. Um I was fortunate enough to there's a group of uh, of folks that I have chatted with numerous times uh and yeah, it's man, it it's everyone's dealing with something. That's that's all I can say. It's it you know whether you're you've seen horrific I now I can't even relate to some of the stuff our war fighters have seen today. I was in the Marine Corps at a time when we weren't doing what we're doing today, that's for sure. Um and so Everyone's dealing with something, so yeah. you just got to be there. And and you, it's not just being there; it's understanding how to communicate in terms of them, and stop the keeping the focus on yourself. Uh, and people aren't doing it intentionally. What the words we're using that can be very self centered is it's just it's not going to help anyone else. So those, include those four things when you're chatting with someone, and that makes sure it's about them and their brain. It's a healthy thing for their brain to hear. It's, it's healthy for them to share their thoughts and opinions. It's healthy for others to talk in terms of their priorities. It's very healthy for others to be validated and, if appropriate and, and timely, give them choices for how, the, how you can be a resource for them. Is one of the bigger problems with validation and not doing it right when somebody's listening and they want to help and they're trying to solve the problem or give the answer to what they go, need to go do? Yeah, that, that's a challenge because I'd say nine times out of ten, people are not looking for you to fix it. They just want to be heard for it. Mm-hmm. I, I deal with this with my son all the time, you know, or anyone, you know, I mean, as, you know, as parents, mentors, teachers, and guides, whether you're, you're you know, uh, superior to someone at work by title or whether, you know, you're a spouse or or a parent, you know, when you hear someone that, that you have great empathy for and you hear them in pain or distress, the first impulse we have is to try to fix it for them, especially if we have experience and especially if we know what we think will work or would work for us, we want to fix it. And well, only fix it or try to fix it if that's what they want. (laughs) Because again, most of the time they're just looking to be heard. You know, I I use this, uh, this kind of phraseology all the time. And that is, you know, I, I tend not to teach mentor or guide anyone. I never give people a, a how to do this or how to fix this. If I listen to what their priorities are, because I'm now objective, because we'll talk about that stoic, stoic side, where if I understand your goals and objectives, I see your skill sets, I then can ask what I call discovery questions of you. In other words, if I hear, all right, you're trying to get to point B and you're at point A, and you're kind of running around in circles, emotionally hijacked, and you're stressed, you got frustration, anger. And I just simply ask you, instead of, instead of telling you, hey, if you just shut up and go from here to there, you're going you're gonna to make it. They don't want to hear that. People are more likely to take action if they discover it on their own. That's why I call them discovery questions. So instead of saying, here's what you need to do, all I say is, I ask, I say, hey, help me understand. You're doing X, Y, and Z. 
Is any of these things helping you or are they hindering you from getting to where you're trying to go? And all you're doing is you starting to have them engage your cognitive brain and then they will come up with their answer about whether it's working or not. And then they say, huh, I don't know. I don't think it's working. I said, well, have what kind of things are you considering that might actually be helpful for you to get from there? You know, what's the resume of someone that's doing that position? What kind of things you need to do along the way, do you think? Again, you're just constantly asking questions so people will discover their path when they're ready to discover it. Mm. You know, Robin Dreek, I'm a slow learner. And uh, I read your book, and you use the term discovery questions. And I'm afraid I confused it with the sales term of a discovery call. But just now... <laughs> I finally put two and two together <laughs> and understood why you call it a discovery call because you're helping them discover. Right. They're discovering their path, not me discovering. Yeah, it's it's granted the the entire time you're listening, you're discovering their path with them, but it's really for them to discover the route that they're meant to take. And the way that you're, again, I have the three anchors that for everything I do is the most important things is I make sure that everything I do supports uh, a good, healthy professional relationship, open, honest communication, and transparency, because if you have that, you're on the road to that healthy relationship. And then the third is the, I'm an available resource for the success and prosperity of others without expectation or reciprocity. And so this, as that that third anchor there, you know, an available resource for others. And how are you a resource for others? Well, you have to understand what's important for others. You have to understand their priorities. And when you understand their priorities, and now you're objective because I'm not emotionally attached to their decisions, then I can ask those discovery questions. And that's what is really that is how you really that's what great, great inspirational leaders do. They're a resource for others. And how are you a resource? You bring resources to bear for them. And how do you do that? you help them discover the path they're meant to walk to where they're trying to go. Mm, amen. Well, one last question I just have to ask. I'm sorry, but I've had a drink now and... Uh, <laughs> it's Friday. Yeah. So, uh, you were dealing with all these Russians, okay? So, did guys like Vladimir Putin hate you or were there Russians that were, uh, you know, maybe trying to diminish you or get rid of you? or Because or, it seems like you must have been an awful thorn in their side. Um, <laughs> that's such a funny question. Um, <laughs> they definitely, <laughs> well, you'd tell me, but then you'd have to kill me. I know. <laughs> no, no, it, it's actually pretty, it's pretty funny. The, uh, I was pretty aggressive, uh, at the first couple years of my career and I was so aggressive that I, I became, I think I really just became a nuisance. Um, that was <laughs> just discarded. <laughs> um, I, I did a lot of undercover work. And, you know, after after a little bit of time, I think they were really on to me and I just became the, the, this, this nuisance in their lives <laughs> that this this this, uh, this Tasmanian devil of a uh, of an, you know, of an FBI intelligence uh, officer that was trying to recruit them that they just <laughs> didn't want to spend any of their time with. <laughs> oh, they just gave up on you, I guess. Uh, it was just. I, I I literally threw everything I possibly could at every operation I was doing, just trying to trying to win. And uh, and you know, in hindsight, I was boy, I was relentless. <laughs> I was just and uh, so to say that one of them, just like I didn't hate any of these people. Um, they were just decent human beings that had a different context of of how the world was, sto- was uh, supposed to operate. And what were they all doing? 
They're all acting in their own best interest in terms of safety and security, prosperity for themselves and their families and their loved ones. Their sense of understanding of what prosperity was is different than mine. And so that's where non-judgmental validation comes in and is like, I understood exactly how they saw that. I didn't say I approved of it. I said I understood it because validation is understanding. And so I didn't hate anyone. And I know they didn't hate me. I know it was kind of a pain in their butt. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> but you don't go on vacations to, to Russia. No, no. I, um, <laughs> although it's really funny. Um, all my books are in print in Russia and in China. Um, oh, really? But, so it's, yeah, um, it's kind of it's kind of a hoot. Matter of fact, the code that actually sizing people up, it's it's in a bunch of different languages. And believe it or not, the, the, the folks that have been doing the most publicity for it is in Poland. And I have done so much publicity work for Poland. And I asked uh, I asked one of the people, one of the interviewers a couple of days ago, I said, wow, you guys have been really fantastic. I said, how come you guys are really high on my book over there? And they said, well, you know, this book's all about trust and we don't trust anyone over here. It's <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, they Makes probably sense. also <laughs> like sticking a finger in the in, in Russia's eye too. So That too. Uh, that helps. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm chuckling so much. I'm just thinking about, it was a funny question you asked. I've never been asked that before about whether they hated me or not hated me. And I just really thought, hindsight of, of my first 10 years of my career and uh, i did a lot of things and uh all of them were really probably very bothersome to them <laughs> well that, that tingling means it's working so you were probably doing uh, Not, the right thing uh, you know I, I i as i you know said during the last podcast with you you know i called it you know hit and lotto you know because it's so rare to get someone on board that decides they want to buy my product of american patriotism but it's so beneficial because you understand everything they're trying to do you understand all their sources their methods their targeting you know it's like hitting lotto because it's that rare and that beneficial and so i was relentlessly trying to buy a lotto ticket every single day <laughs> meaning i was try i had so many different operations i was trying to do and and, and here's the great thing None of them were mean spirited. None of them were coercive. It's, you know, so how do you how do you recruit a Russian spy? Easy. You don't. You just figure out what their priorities are and you offer resources. And my job is to figure out which one of them had priorities that they actually didn't want their children to grow up over there, but they'd rather have them grow up over here. That's pretty basic because again, according to them, the ones that did have that, their priorities was that their children would grow up in a place that had you know opportunities for more prosperity for their futures, better health care, better education, whatever it was, or dying wish of a mother or a grandfather was that their grandchildren wouldn't grow up over there. My job is just to figure out which ones might have had that and let them know I have uh, what they need. <laughs> that was, and so it was that was pretty much that simple. And that's why everybody in sales should read Sizing People Up because there were so yep. many, uh, so many lessons uh, in there. So, well, Robin Drake, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you uh, again, and I appreciate you coming back on uh, Authors in Quarantine, getting cocktails, and I hope that you and your family continues to stay safe and healthy and reasonably sane. You too, Douglas, and to all listeners too. Stay healthy, stay sane, stay, stay safe, and uh, thank you so much for having me back on. I uh, love chatting with you. You're, you're a great host, and I appreciate you much. There's a man who leads a life of danger To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger With every move he makes Another chance he takes he won't live to see tomorrow Secret Agent Man Secret Agent Man
and taking away your name. 